Welcome to the Big Brew Theory Podcast, where we talk brews, news, and what you should choose. Enjoy unique insights from beverage industry experts, big and small, from startup to stardom. Get to know your favorite brews. And now your host, Andy Pedic. Hello and welcome to the Big Brew Theory Podcast. Today's episode 001. That's correct. It is our first ever episode in the launch of our series. So from here forward, Big Brew Theory will be shared with you on Tuesdays and Thursdays, except for this special launch week where we will have five different episodes. We will be brought to you in 25 to 35 minute segments, just perfect for the morning commute. And this particular one with Chris Engdahl from Lantern Brewing Company did go a little bit long because we geeked out on Brew Talk. But I think you'll enjoy it and see some amazing passion behind all the creations that he's putting together up there in North Seattle. Like any fresh startup, this program is brought to us with the help of several local business partners. Today's episode is presented by ZCounting.com. ZCounting provides financial services from basic monthly bookkeeping to CFOs for hire. ZCounting.com, preventing startup failure through accounting services, bookkeeping, and investor reporting, brought directly to you on your schedule at your office. And now a quick important message. Disclaimer. The following content has been created for the listening pleasure of universal brew lovers. Our program is recorded live and unscripted. As such, any opinions or facts stated during these episodes are purely organic in conversation and personal views of the industry experts we interview. If you disagree with any stated information, please understand this program is created for the enjoyment of our listeners. We are unbiased and intend to promote the industry as a whole. If you don't like any content presented herein, please find another program rather than sending us nasty grams via comment or email. If you're among the other 99% to enjoy our show or someone who would like to contribute in any positive way, be sure to get in touch. We'd love to hear from you. Now, please enjoy the show. So I'm here today at Lantern Brewing Company talking to its owner, Chris Engdahl. Welcome, Chris. Thanks. Uh, We're going to chat today about his brewery. It's a great Seattle find. Uh, I've started seeing it everywhere, and the brews are very unique and uh, running well against the the local craft scene. So, Chris, why don't you uh, start by telling us how long you've been doing this? When did you start doing it? What was your inspiration for becoming a brewer? Maybe sure. what you did before? Well, I've been running Lantern Brewing since the end of 2010. We formed in a really small space, and I at first focused on just bottles. So it was a, uh, a true nano brewery that only packaged in 22 ounce bottles. You did only package? Yeah. Interesting. Yep. That was informative and fun and exciting and a good kind of experience to get our and our product out into the world a little bit but it was really apparent really pretty quickly uh, that it was not going to be sustainable in a tiny space um, and when we're talking about tiny are we saying like 600 square feet oh yeah yeah right garage style yep so, so basically on a one barrel system oh, that's the best, uh, it, it was yeah <laughs> i was there were a lot of people who were very excited. They were like, yay, you know, go small brewery. But, uh, you know, oh, God, in bottling on a one barrel, I mean, you had to be, you got so much in the hose, you can't waste anything. Yeah, no kidding. That's a lot of work. No kidding. How did you set up? Did you just do one bottle at a time and cap? And Oh, yeah. Oh, that's, yep, yep. that's the best. Blick, Was it just you? Lickman beer gun and a couple, oh. of, couple of kegs at a time. God, the purest. Yeah, it sucked. Uh, was there anybody else or just you? <laughs> no, it was just me. Uh, my wife has been more than supportive the whole time, but uh, you know she'd help a little bit. But it was basically all 
all my fault. I yeah. I was doing all the, the brewing and the bottling and uh, all the other. So she's glad stuff. that there's less assembly line at this place. Uh, she's actually still our head keg washer. So really, uh, oh yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that that yeah, she lasted. Must be a saint. That's one of the worst jobs. <laughs> Seriously, no, no kidding. That lasted until pretty much the end of 2012. So I was in that space for a couple of years. By basically the end of 2011, I realized we needed bigger digs. So I found our current spot here at the end of uh, the summer of 2012. Took the building and it took the entirety of 2013 to get it built because, like I was saying, it was a big blank canvas. Nice big flat slab great envelope as far as you know the 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 walls rolled up doors but nothing uh in terms of the the drainage electrical plumbing the equipment was all purchased for this spot Uh, i brought along the old equipment as our pilot system but you know that's that's one barrel in a 7500 square foot space is not a way to go so this well is and not- to paint a picture for the radio sphere out there this is a super deep space how do you know how long it is this way uh width the building is 45 feet roughly length is 135 feet so you've yeah. got uh that's a 15 barrel boiling side and how much tank space do you have over there in brights and 60 barrel uh, 60 barrels worth of fermentation and then 30 barrel uh bright tank Sweet. And then a bunch of wood barrels and kegs. But this place is, like, not even half built out to what it could be. Right. Yeah. There's uh, If there's one thing that I learned from that tiny space, it was, you know, design something for expansion. Right. So I failed the first time. This time I think I got it right. Well, most places you go, uh, you know, efficiency is key. But you've got, like, some airspace. You can breathe in here. I mean, you could play catch with the football in this place. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, but it won't be long before those barrels are racked, you know, six high, and you're. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're you know, there's there's a lot of keg, barrel, bottle, you know, equipment traffic across the floor right now. It's pretty much a big waste of space, but that's because we're in between some phases here where I gotta turn over a bunch of barrels for a couple of different projects and uh, collected a couple of weeks worth of dirty kegs because we haven't had time to wash them. So there's a big clutter, but that's going to get fixed, uh, and it'll it'll begin to look like a, a little bit more sane brewery here pretty soon. I've got a buddy in Portland who's got a space about this exact size, and he ended up like putting in long racking like this on a three high, mm-hmm. and they would actually ferment in the uh-huh. the plastic totes, yeah, right. and and pump it up and down. Oh, I mean, gosh. it's just amazing. But yeah. the, the aisles in between them are like maybe six feet. Like I don't even think you could get a pallet jack through there. Yeah, um, it's it's incredible. The musical chairs and the Tetris you can play. Anyway, back on task. 2012, you were in Greenwood. You moved up here. Yep. This is the third anniversary of this space being actually built out? Yep. So we fired off the first batches in January 2014. So production started a little over three years ago. And then basically May 1st of 2014, so exactly three years ago now, we opened the tasting room. It's been kind of a whirlwind ever since. You know, most of the beer by volume goes out to bars, restaurants, bottle shops. But we get a a healthy crowd in here in the tasting room, and I love how you fun. know there's so much uh, kind of 
uh, maybe not sensationalizing, but there's so much on TV about, you know, technology startups and other kinds of, you know, people who don't eat for four years or they spend their entire life savings. And the alcohol industry is so glamorous to your average consumer. They don't realize that, <laughs> you know, it's it's still hurts every time, you know. I didn't uh, yeah, pay yeah. myself for four years uh, oh, before the first, you know, people don't get that. But uh, to paint a picture, let's see, what inspired you to go to the Belgian theme mantra that you have? Because yeah. that is your main theme, right? Yes, it is. A lot of my experiences growing up were around learning about different cultures, learning different languages. French was one of them. So I had chances early on to study French, and then in high school I, I uh, got a chance to live and work first in France and then in Switzerland, in French-speaking part of Switzerland. So the, the French language and the French culture part of it's been kind of something I've lived with for a long time. Uh, and then um, in the... You drank a lot of awesome brews. A lot of really crappy ones. So, <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> so, so that was part of it, exploring, right, a different, right. A different culture's beer. When I was in... Um, you know, in high school, I didn't drink a whole lot, but I actually started trying to homebrew in high school uh, here in the States. When I got to college, I kept trying to homebrew. And then in the, the middle of college, I got a chance to live in Paris for almost a year. I was, I was actually trying to make the, uh, the Olympic fencing team. So I was training there. Goodness. Didn't make it, but had a great time. Uh, you know, did like World Cup events and got to travel all around to different competitions and got to experience a lot of different beer while I was, you know, not training. But when I was in Paris, I had a bunch of French friends who thought it was pretty funny to feed Belgian, weird Belgian beers to an American, but I didn't think they were weird. Right. Like, they, they were actually very much like American drinkers, which is really ironic. They grew up drinking Cronenberg, you know, light beers, all these light lagers, and maybe they would get adventurous and do a... a Hellforth Brune, so it's this sort of, you know, Newcastle-ish kind of, right. you know, dark lager almost. So they would take me to these Belgian beer bars in Paris and, uh, you know, say, okay, uh, try that one. It's really, it's really sour. You'll hate it. And I'm like, oh, wow, this is awesome. I love this. So when I got back to the States, I kept, you know, trying to homebrew a little bit, but I, I wasn't really able to pull off any of the beer that I was remembering, that was on the East Coast. And when I moved back uh, here to the West Coast, um, I kept trying Belgian beer. I'd see Belgian-style beer offered by breweries around here, but it was never what I was, you know, what I had fallen in love with, right? It was always either, you know, anywhere from slightly wrong to way wrong. And so I kept trying to homebrew and study and learn about Belgian style beer more and more, and to some degree French style too, because actually all those beer styles predate Belgium. Right. right? The beer that we call Belgian beer, uh, most of it comes from before there was a formal Belgium, because Belgium is a very young country. The the culture and the history has always been in that part of the world. So whatever it's called, it's it's that you know interesting northern France, Belgium, a little bit up into the Netherlands, a little bit over into. Uh, Franconia in Western Germany too. Uh, it's this really interesting area with respect to the, the history of beer and the, the culture of beer there. So that was what I was really interested in. I did a lot of schooling in that sort of area too. Some really awesome 
people don't get that little, like the Alsace region, that there's just that yeah. little pocket where there's just the craziest, all the, you know, Gewürztraminer, yes, but there's all kinds of funky beers up in there. Yeah. It's kind of like the Douro Valley in uh, in Portugal. Like, it's just kind of this area that nobody knows. It's way, way up in the north. Right. But it makes some of the best product. So for the listeners of this program, a lot of them are beer enthusiasts. There's industry people. But let's do two things. One, everybody assumes, you know, the old understanding was if you own a brewery, you must have gone to, like, fermentation science at UC Davis or something. Yeah. You know, right. We're lucky that uh, Washington State and Oregon State are now having much deeper uh, beverage making programs beyond the viniculture analogy that they did mm-hmm. had before. But what did you do in between uh, World Cup fencing and owning Lantern? Did uh, you go full time when you first started out? Were you brewing on weekends and had a day job? Yeah. Well, when at first I was brewing on weekends and had a day job. Uh, that day job was loosely tech related. Looking back, it was um, luckily very operations oriented. Right. So I had a amount of design and engineering experience, product and program management experience, some fairly technical experiences that, strangely enough, I was able to kind of translate into, you know, at first homebrewing, but after I started Lantern, I was realizing more and more that that operational experience really lent itself to uh, the operations and the, the manufacturing of beer. Right. Well, and there's those two sides that people don't understand. Like, yeah, I mean, everyone's a home brewer right now, right? Right. I mean, I pour at festivals, and every single person wants to say, oh, yeah. is that Y yeast number 5842? Right, right, you know, right, right. Oh, I used that one in my basement one time. Right. But, you know, the thing is, you can understand the science of making beer. You can understand the science of drinking beer. But when you go to a commercial level, there's all of this engineering that goes on there's, there's all like, of these commercial equipment yeah there's and pumps the, and hoses and glycol and the underlying oh, machines chemicals there's <laughs> the, yeah there's the whole operations of you know the, the the brewing operations is one thing that people kind of grasp but there is you know a vast set of operations that ranges from this you know the sanitary right the sanitation right. and just the upkeep the mechanical side uh, all of the systems you know it's a big collection of systems, right? A, a heating system, a, a, a cooling system, a system for keeping everything clean, right? It's, it's, it's a collection of systems. And then people forget um, the fact that breweries are also operating businesses that have finances and taxes and employees oh, yeah. and supply chain yep. and finding yep. the best ingredients yeah, and the best and price. That's, that's <laughs> Selling side, your stuff? Go figure. Yeah, and that's <laughs> the side, too, that a lot of people have a glimpse of because they realize that most small breweries are small businesses, right? So they'll have right. some way to kind of equate that. But one of the things that often seems to surprise folks that I talk with is that we have as deep of a regulatory structure to deal with as we do, right? Because a small business is one thing. you got some fairly straightforward accounting things you can deal with. There's financing. There's, you know, sort of business operations as every other business has right. to put up with and, you know, excel in or just get get by as, it, as they are able. But in brewing, you're regulated on a number of different levels. You have state and federal basically excise taxes that, right. that force you to do extra reporting to pay attention to, you know, production and, and the state and the federal are not synchronized so you have to tally different numbers for each so there's a whole different layer of regulation there as a food manufacturing business there's another layer of uh, of regulation so there's there's all kinds of stuff that you have to be able to pull together 
in order to be a successful brewery outside of any beer you ever brew, right? right. It's, there's a large set of baggage that every brewery has to, to carry around and be really good at uh, even before they you know, put something in a glass and put it in front of you. So, the thing also that I always have just dreaded is, I call it the tornado, but there's that point when you've been home brewing, maybe you have a little thing in your basement, you have a day job, but there's this cyclical period where when you want to move into your first commercial space, in order to apply for a state and federal liquor license, you have to have a fully outfitted space, right? Bingo. Yes. But good point. You have to yep. have the money to get the space. You yep. have to have the space to get the license, but you yep. have to have the license to get the loan. Yep. So the whole thing is like, oh, crap. So you uh, have you have to retrofit this entire space that could make product, but you're yep. not allowed to make anything yep. for three, four months to get TTB to push through. Yep. And then you got to make stuff and send your recipes. Ed, but all the while, I'm still back at the credit union trying to get the freaking loan uh, when it, you know, you can't just dive in. So fortunately, there's this kind of big climate of collaboration now, and a lot of people got their start at another brewery or their old boss let them, you know, work night shifts yeah. for a little while. When I, I started my first beverage business, we rented out the basement of a winery that was just breaking into kegged wine. And they had this really fancy keg cleaner, one of those ones that, like, takes it down and flips it over and cleans and fills in two seconds. And so that's the only way we could have afforded to exist. But I just love that people, I I always think, I go to these shows and everything, and people don't understand that when you're a two-person operation, you know, they assume that you're going to be a, you know, an Abercrombie dude that they hired from an event staffing, you know, oh, you're not the girl in the fireball tank top. Like you're the owner of the company and you're standing here for three days, a bite of Seattle pouring, but you're the janitor, you're the freaking HVAC fixer, you're the the delivery driver. Guess who pushes the garbage cans and the recycling cans out to the curb? Oh God. (laughs) That's me. Right. (laughs) And what to do with all the leftover mash, which people think would be really cool, but Oh, you compost. That's great. But where do you take it to do that? You know, we live in the middle of a huge metropolitan area. Yep. So uh, let's carry on with, you know, I think a lot of people that are listening to this program know beer really well. But for the sake of anyone who's kind of more of a beginner of the Western European styles, could you explain really quickly a couple of the nuances of Belgian style beers, uh, you know, the yeast that you might use and what people expect or maybe some big names that they might recognize that are Belgian? Well, let's let's start with kind of that was the, like four different things. Yeah. <laughs> What's a Belgian beer? To me, and I hope this is a, a good representation to the actual Belgians and especially to the Belgian brewers who are extremely well schooled and have a fantastic history. Belgian beer is beer that first it embraces a, a lot of different there's a lot to it. It embraces a lot of different regional traditions. Okay. And it also, you know, like I, I said earlier, it embraces actually a lot of different, um, not just regions, but cultures. For example, you know, Spain was uh, the, the controlling government of what's now the Netherlands. And that actually extended down into what's now northern, well, to some degree, southern Belgium as well. So there's all these different influences in that region that we now call Belgium. And the beer is kind of reflected that way. Often people go, oh, Belgian beer. Well, I don't like beer made with Belgian yeast, so I don't like Belgian beer. But the truth is there's much more to it than just the yeast, right? There's those regional styles that you can talk about as being Belgian. There are... Well, there's a lot of misrepresentation, right? A lot of people just assume that wit is the 
the king, right? And they've had a blue right. or a shock top or something, and they think yeah. that's Belgian beer, which is yeah, let's be real, it's not. Well, I mean, it is, but yeah, the JV version. So yeah, so we could we could look at uh, an example like a wit beer, right? Right. There there are regions in uh, Belgium that are well known and have been for a long time for making beer, either uh, you know with some wheat all the way up through almost all wheat, right. and that comes from that region being a wheat growing region. Right. So there's one of the hallmarks of Belgian brewing to me is focusing on what's around you and making use of the local ingredients. The, uh, you know, there's another part of Belgium where there is uh, this beautiful river valley with a nice big city uh, now situated there. All around it is a big agricultural area, including uh, where they would grow these wonderful fruits and some, you know, some barley around there. Turns out those areas also have a really interesting microflora in the air, in the soil, on the plants. And so if you make a beer in that particular valley, it's called the Seine Valley, it's where Brussels is, and you expose a beer to the air in a certain way, you can get it to be inoculated by this local flora. So if we start talking about lambics and Reza and the other the faro and fox and all these other sort of derivatives of these wild fermented beers that's another example and a very different one than wit beer so those are both belgian style beers both belgian orient uh origin but very different right because right. wit beer is really mellow it's got this nice uh usually sort of semi-sweet to dry finish with a real pronounced um graininess and Often it's really refreshing because it's slightly tart. Uh, the best ones, in my opinion, are really low spicing, uh, but some. So there's a little citric twist or a citrus right. twist from some uh, cor- uh, coriander and orange peel. Um, on the other hand, that, that lambic uh, tradition that I was talking about, those are super dry, right, and and anywhere from mildly tart to, like, rip your face off sour. Right. Uh, sometimes they're blended with fruit to sort of balance A the... lot of people would know the Lindemann's framboise, right? There you yeah. go. Yeah. It's pretty high alcohol, too, isn't it? Uh, typically not. Mm. Typically not. And that's that's actually another thing that I hear about. You know, oh, I know about Belgian beer. It's all 10% ABV. Well, no. Actually, there's a, a whole family of and a real deep culture of Belgian table beer that's under 3%. Uh, you know, 4% table beer is really common. So you can get these really I would never low... associate that with Belgian right, beers. Yeah. Right, right. <laughs> Too sessiony for Belgium. Yeah. yeah. So to me, Belgian beer is beer that in northern France, you know, southern Netherlands, the area we call Belgium now, is really deeply woven into the the history and the culture of the people there uh and it's it's really diverse and it it shares some commonality in the sense that it's all sort of located in that that region that that broad geographic region of northern europe there but there are so many different styles of beer that we could talk about and so many different approaches to to brewing the beer that i i for me the most common aspect of it is that it's beer that uses 
what's around you in a very deliberate and a very if you live intentional in northern way. France, southern Belgium around you. Well, yeah, but that now bleeds into what we're trying to do in that I I loved having those different beers when I was there. I loved the idea that they would look around them and go, oh, wow, we have this field of spelt. Well, let's make spelt beer. Wow, look, we can get wheat this year, and we have some of last year's barley, so let's use mostly wheat and a little barley. Let's make this beer, you know. And, right. And you can, you can look around you. So beyond using the same grains and buying Belgian yeast, how do you replicate that those nuances when you're – well, 9,000 miles west on the same latitude line. Yeah, so I explicitly eschew that approach, right? right? I think that's actually a really, for me, that would be a very disingenuous approach. I, I don't begrudge anybody if they want to buy, you know, castle malting. You sure. know, they make great malt, sure. Yeah. But for me, when I look around us here, I look to the north and I see the Skagit Valley. They have absolutely fantastic rain. I look over in the Palouse and see these, you know, beautiful fields of a couple of different barley varieties that <laughs> yeah. are begging to be put into beer, and they have been, I see no reason to try to copy Chimay, copy Duvel, copy Haygarden. You know, I don't want to copy any of those things. I don't think anybody should if they're really, you know, being honest about creating interesting beer. Those beers already exist, right? Get, don't brew, don't brew a West Mala. Right. Let them keep brewing that. Go and enjoy one. If you can get one here, good. It's beautiful, <laughs> magnificent beer, but do something that's around you, wherever you are. So the approach that we're taking here is to try to take that same spirit, look around us, look up north, look east, look west when we can, and get ingredients that are very local. You know, don't buy aseptically packaged fruit from God knows where, probably Turkey or, you know, maybe as foreign as Oregon, but still, right. you know, if I get fruit in a Mylar bag, you know, it kind of turns me off. Sure. I like buying fruit from a farmer that I met at the farmer's market and he grows it, you know, somewhere in Eastern Washington and I get a fruit bin of whole freaking unpitted cherries and right. I put those puppies in a barrel. Right, that's way more interesting and way more exciting to me. And I hope that if people stop to think a little bit more about that approach, that it would be more exciting to them too. Because one of the things it can do is let you celebrate Washington itself. People think about Washington and its products and they say, oh, you know, lots of apples, uh, dairy. But it's really interesting because, you know, Washington has this huge wine producing yeah. industry, right? We're the yeah. second largest in the continent. And huge craft beer, as does Oregon and yep. parts of California. And the spirits, we all know this, the 1183 deal. Yeah. And cider, you know. But yeah. the thing is, that space between Yakima and the Tri-Cities, and extended to Walla Walla, the Highway 84 corridor, yeah. you can grow anything there. I mean, other than, like, pineapples. But, <laughs> you know, a lot yeah. of that was livestock land before, and it's just got super rich soils, but it's got those, you know, 15 feet deep, alluvial deposits from the great floods that came through. Oh, yeah. And, I mean, you can... People don't understand from, from that... Lake Bonneville. We named right, our right, double, exactly. We named our double Belgian-style pale ale after oh, that that's lake. A sweet name. <laughs> but, you know, Washington is the world's leader in raspberries uh, up, you know, Whatcom, Skagit County. Yes, it is. World leader in asparagus. Garbanzo, split pea lentil commission. Yep. You know, and 
people say Oregon strawberries, but we actually grow more here than we do in Oregon. Yeah. And blueberries. Yeah. And blackberries. Yep. So, you know, the one that I love is the huckleberries, but you can't really cultivate that. And that's a little more Idaho. Stay away from the bears. That's where I grew up in Eastern Washington. Anyway, <laughs> it's, it's amazing that, you know, we have this huge wine grapes and hops, uh, but you don't think about all these other crazy things that you can get along the way. I mean, yeah. you could stop at that fruit stand in Sela, going through Yakima and buy anything. Yep. And so anyway, we could go on forever about this. So yeah. tell me about, here we are, Greenwood, Seattle, Washington. Yeah. We are, you know, on the other side of the planet from Belgium at the same kind of climate. So you make diverse portfolio beers here. Tell us about a couple of your flagships. You know, we I guess we understand how they're inspired, but what do you really hang your hat on as far as your couple favorite? What are they? What style are they? What do you put in them? Yeah. Um, you know, everybody asks what our flagship is, and I kind of stopped thinking about it that way. When people ask you your favorite, that's the best. Yeah, right. Never ask a brewer what his favorite is. Yeah, it's like my favorite child. Right. <laughs> it actually is in a lot of ways because it depends on the day. Like, nope, that, you're not my favorite today. Right. Me so, off. I mean, you do have you do have a pale, and you do have some of the traditional styles. Yeah. When I started the brewery, I started with a Abbey style Trapel, an Abbey Debel, a Wit beer, uh, a pale ale, and a stout. And those I thought were a good way to kind of represent, you know, the like a first step in representing what we could do. Along the way, we've kept all five of those and pretty much expanded in every direction to do now you know another couple of abbey style beers so we do a, an abbey blonde beer it's dry hopped and uh it's pretty interesting huh. slightly different than a you know a leffa blonde right right but an abbey uh quadruple as well so there's you know part of it is kind of looking at the the deep Abbey tradition and the monastic brewing uh, history. We do uh, we do the wit beer in like twelve different ways. I love adding fruit to the wit beer. Uh, it, it's a great vehicle for doing. Right now we've got a cranberry wit beer on. I'm going to try to get more whole stone fruits uh, like I did last year and do fruited versions of wit beers. Looking right now at a barrel that's uh, still got couple hundred liters of wit beer and then several dozen kilos of plums in it so there's you know lots of different wheat beer bases that we'll do serve it on its own serve it with you know fruit either secondary fermentation or sometimes this whole you know kind of barrel barrel aged we do a number of different pale ale styles you know if we were going to talk about a traditional flagship that actually might qualify uh we are selling a lot of this brio sort of a light belgian english hybrid pale ale right now so for those who frequent the untapped and the beer bars and everything which ones are the most easy to find around seattle the names of your varieties maybe so people can keep them top of mind bonneville's a cool name they would see bonneville that's our heavier kind of a almost a double pale uh it's a pale strong ale but most people Resonate. Brio pale. Yeah, Brio is a, a single pale. You'd see more and more now since 
a couple of months ago, Jolie Foley, which is the Abbey-style blonde that I mentioned, uh, dry hopped. You would see our Belgian table beer, a Blondine, this nice light little lunch beer. Kind of nominally the most well-known French style, besides Saison, I suppose, uh, is a beer de garde. So we have a beer de garde. It's Love. called Aubrun. Right. We do sell a lot of the Trippel. Our Abbey Double, uh, the Debel, is out. It was at the Flat Stick for a while. Right. Uh, there's, you know, a good smattering of these things. So I uh, went to college in the Palouse at Washington State. Yeah. And uh, you were talking about barley, and I got like, I never want to see a grain elevator again. <laughs> I, I'm into cycling, and I would go out for 70 miles by myself. And uh-huh. you could go for 300 miles and not see anything. Uh-huh. But freaking wheat and barley but anyway it's a bit of a party school the point i'm getting at is i was thinking we should do a history lesson the next time i come by and talk about the monks and how these beers you know initially came to be yeah but there was this party that we had called the mustache bash and it was in november for the november uh, prostate cancer uh, yeah but you could only get into the party if you grew a real mustache for guys. Perfect. And so some people started like six weeks early to try to get something going. And, you know, my roommate was this this Italian guy. Hey, Ryan, if you're out there. And he could grow one in like overnight. You know, it was awesome. But just think I just sucked it. at it. You should totally do a monk fest where only people with shaved heads could come. <laughs> or like the, the Dr. Evil, like uh, costume cap. Just a bunch of bald people. Yeah. Anyway, or with the, with the set. But I digress. So... Uh, where are the best places to find your beers right now? Obviously, we're unbiased toward clients uh, in the restaurant world, but what's uh, the easiest place to find Lanterns? Is it like the Chuck's Hop Shops, Beer Junctions, beer kind of spots, or is it more on-premise? Yes, yes and yes. Uh, it's getting out more and more on-premise as we're able to go visit more and more places. But Chris you know, delivers all his own kegs. Yeah, so and frankly, our preference is to work with people that focus on Washington beer. So, uh, you know, I, we were chatting about the Flat Stick Pub, sure. the, the two. They, many props to them for putting so much focus on Washington beer. Chuck's, likewise, does a great job of representing a lot of different breweries. They don't focus explicitly on uh, Washington, but they support a heck of a lot of Washington breweries. The, uh, the places, I mean, most of the places that we go are actually less well-known as you know, kind of the craft beer place. Is it all draft now? 90% of it's draft. Okay. Uh, we're we're doing right now uh, some bottle packages and going to Chuck's, going to, you know, the small small groceries, uh, right. some of the bottle shops around. We're going to be increasing the bottles by a significant, significant amount So then summer. people will be able to find malt and vine and full throttle bottles. And I mean, I, yes. I'm assuming you're kind of in North Seattle at this point. So, yeah. but those kind of accounts for people that are going to be looking forward in yeah. the coming months. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Okay. We'll be, we'll be focusing much more and I'll get back and get back to a lot of the places that we talked with way back and have more bottles. We'll put more styles in bottles too, because for the longest time it's been basically those five that we started with. Yeah. You can find a lot of our draft offerings, smaller spots around, you know, the Tip and Drag in Beacon Hill, um, Beer Junction you mentioned, uh, right. Ounces in West Seattle too, right. up at the Admiral Junction in West Seattle are a couple of different spots, Circa and the Copper Coin, and actually the, admirable, uh, the Admiral Pub. And people could come and try it on May 18th from 6 to 10 p.m. at that NanoFest with Minnesota. Yeah. Uh, we're, I mean, obviously, we're launching... Uh, we have six episodes of our podcast coming out next week in conjunction with the launch of 
the podcast and with NanoFest. And of the 20 nano breweries from the Puget Sound that are going to be there, you're the only one that's focused on Belgian style. Cool. So people can look forward to trying some great Lantern beers. And just as you mentioned, with some of our friends in the key accounts, we have we have about 15 or 14 uh, breweries coming with their own booths. And then our friends at Zeke's Pizza and at Plastic yes. Pub awesome. both stepped up to each bring four uh, breweries who couldn't come. So those guys yeah. are going to buy a keg each of some of the smallest of the smalls Good. and uh, have the... the craft corner with uh, or the nano corner with zeke's and uh, same with plastic so we'll have to thank those guys uh but the thing that i love about a lot of the nano breweries that i've met and this one especially is people assume if you're small that it's because you're brand new because everybody wants to become national and distribute with wholesalers and be in costco and you know it's not that it's not that uh i mean you are a purist in the style that you make but it's just beer first, right? Yeah. <laughs> and that's something I, I really like. I mean, I would I would seek out a place like this. I did uh, to find to find just really awesome beer because I can't find it. You yeah. know, and that's not because you're brand new and you started last year. You've been making beer for seven or eight years now. But your stuff continues to grow in popularity, and it's. Uh, I mean, I've started seeing it several places. Maybe I just frequent all the ones you said, but yeah. or I just drink too much. But uh, I'm starting to see a lot of Lantern, and it seems like the beer is definitely speaking for itself. Yeah. So, are you doing any of the major festivals this summer? Is there anything after Nanofest that people can look for you at? We will be at the uh, Washington Beer Commission's Summer Brewers Festival out at Marymore. Biggie. We will be doing. Oh, there are a couple of smaller ones uh, that I decided to do this year. Hops and Crops Festival, I think is what it's called, in September. Mary Olson Farm right. in uh, Auburn, which is a, uh, a basically a, a music and beer uh, taste, a music festival and beer taste that supports the educational programs that send kids to that historical farm. Whoa. The farm is in this really cool little Full valley. Circle. right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And one of the really neat things is the farm as many of the farms in the Green River Valley grew hops and supported, you know, that was a really important cash crop during the early years of Washington. So it's kind of cool to go and do this festival and be able to full circle, look at the history of hops growing, which was super, super big in Western Washington up until the early 1900s, really. Auburn, Kent, down Auburn, to Puyallup Kent, kind of area. Yeah, Kent, in fact, uh, it was just a, a story the other day. Kent, um, in part, was named because of the region uh, in England that's well known as a hop-growing region. <laughs> there's there's a lot of really interesting history with early farming and especially hops in, in the, the local valleys. Right. And that's, you know, again, that's one of our kind of missions is to support tell some of those stories through the ingredients that we use. So for, uh, another example is there's a new farm in the Chehalis River Valley that's one of the first Western Washington hop farms. And huh. so we've been working with them for a couple of years trying to help them grow and help them get to the point where they're really a sustainable hop. Because it takes three or four years to make vines that are fully trained and you can harvest, right? You know, you can do it in two. Huh. Yeah, if you plant plants nice. in the ground in a couple of years. It'll take a decade like wine. Well, right, right. <laughs> the trick is the Yakima Valley grows 76% of the U.S. crop because not only is the soil great, not only is the climate great, not only is the irrigation fantastic, 
not only are the people there really well versed in all, you know, they, they have an agricultural history in that valley, right? They just have the infrastructure there. You can grow really great hops in the West as well, but the history began a little earlier and it actually kind of died because of some issues that, you know, basically plant diseases and then pests as well. Which are no longer an issue, but people forgot about it. Yeah, they can be mitigated now. And it's interesting to see this sort of revival of an interesting crop like hops on the west side. So anyway, that, that's an interesting thing you can do as a brewer. And when you do something like a fresh hop beer and use hops from a different region than everyone expects, it's a way to kind of circle back and tell some of those stories. Well, the one, there's actually two things that this reminds me of. The first is when people drive down 84 and they go past all those hop farms, they don't realize how much big national money is getting poured into that and how many of those acre plots are you yes. know, leased by Sierra Nevada until 2030 yep. and yep. whatnot. But the other thing is you were saying about thinking about which festivals you're going to is it's the same deal as doing your own deliveries. I mean, people also don't understand in owning a brewery, everybody wants to see you, right? Like you yeah. could have your family or your friends or your seller assistant go out and sell, but you know, these people at Whole Foods and PCC and all that, they get to meet the owners of all these breweries all the time. So it takes to get through the gatekeeper, it takes you, but there's brewer dinners on weeknights and yeah. there's, you know, if you have a wholesaler, there's driving around with sales reps and there's standing at Total Wine on an afternoon and pouring nonstop. And then there's the competitions and then there's the festivals. I mean, it's every single night. And they say, well, why aren't you out at more things? But you really have to choose because I like yeah. some of the smaller ones that are for charity and whatnot, but it's difficult to, like the big ones, like the Oktoberfest in Fremont or the Bite of Seattle or uh, the Marymore Washington Brewers Festival. I mean, they're multiple day events where it's 12 hours plus yep. in the blazing sun yep. and you're by yourself. But anyhow, so... Yeah. Um, is there anything else that is just a core message that you want to put out to the people of Seattle, the five people who might listen to this or the five million people who might listen to this? Yeah, especially now that we've stepped into what we call Seattle Beer Week and we'll be rolling through into American Craft Beer Week. Think about where your beer is coming from and think about how that reflects you know, your values and, and who you want to support. There's a lot of... You know, there's a lot of beer, there's a lot of choice uh, in beer and, you know, and frankly, in everything else. But I think beer is one of those things where people don't often stop to think about, well, you know, what does this say about not just me, but what, you know, what does this say about the people who, what does me buying this beer say to the people who make it? Or, you know, where is this, where is this beer dollar? Where is that support going? Is that what I want to do? Is that what I want to support? I love it when people say, yeah, I, I really love exploring Washington breweries. I don't find, you know, a reason to go outside Washington. There's some really great beer made elsewhere in the world. but Appreciating those regional styles, though. I mean, a lot of consumers are starting to understand a Kolsch. People know a Hefeweizen, but... It, Blue Moon and Shock Top are among the highest selling draft beers in existence. Yeah. And people don't understand that there's really great wit beers that come from local companies that are made with local ingredients. That well, that, that's, that's a, a big part of it. Graduation from that. Yeah, that's a big part of it. When when you find a beer that you like, it's really cool to, to understand the style and understand kind of the intention of it. And then to look around and see, you know, what what other similar beers are there and not just get stuck on one. 
human nature to find a safe choice. Right? Yeah. You know, just stick with the one that you know. But in an era where you've got so much choice and where the choice that you make matters and that, you know, in an era where you can find out a lot of information about where something was made, how much it cost in terms of, you know, an ecological impact or, you know, a a local economic, you know, positive impact, there's no reason to just keep making safe choices without knowing what those, you know, what impact that choice has. So, yeah, if there was somebody who kept buying Blue Moon, I would say, you know, that's all right, but there are, I'm sure there are many styles that you would like that are brewed just down the road from you and would basically be a much more beneficial impact than uh, a deceptively, you know, marketed beer. Well, there's two huge elements to this and here I go on a tangent, but you know, there's a lot of really excellent beers that come in a super ugly package or have a dumb name. Yes. And there's a lot of really <laughs> awful beers that have a beautiful can yep. because they paid yep. some fancy ad agency to do them and they I mean Yep. I'm not going to. This is an unbiased program. Yes. But uh, yes. we all know, have examples. The in other our thing about consumers is I could tell you what my favorite, my five favorite IPAs are. Yep. I could rattle them off right now. Yep. Again, it would call out specific Washington breweries. But the thing is, you know, a lot of people say, oh, I love IPA and oh, I love this one. But how many beer drinkers have had five IPAs in a flight or yeah. maybe you have one every Saturday. Can you really remember that? Well, there's a lot of people making good beer. Yeah. And if you know you like a specific variety, but you haven't tried that many other ones, you know, there, there is a big thing to everybody wants to eat local and everybody cares about getting their produce and everything else local and knowing something that was least made close, but we're getting to that graduation of where did this grain come from? And does he use, any artificial additives? Are there any weird adjuncts in here? Is this, you know, a lot of people are starting to talk malts because we're doing so much progressive stuff up in the Mount Vernon area. Yeah. Uh, but try local things. I know every single person listening to this is going to go tonight and drink a shock top in there. I keep saying wit style, but that's it. Since we're sitting here looking at Belgian beers on the board. Yeah. Graduate people. Take it up to the next step. Drink local, but drink quality. Drink stuff that was sourced nearby. And, uh, Find your favorite style and explore from there because I tell you, there's there's some fantastic stuff, Lantern included. So give us your address really quick if people want to come here and try. 938 North 95th Street in Seattle, 9103. 9103. 9803. 9803. 9803. Yeah. Thanks so much. Uh, Chris, it's been a pleasure. We'll look Likewise. forward to seeing you in NanoFest, and I'll Thanks, be Andy. back here probably this summer. Right on. All right, cheers. Thanks for listening to the Big Brew Theory Podcast. We'll see you next week with more of the best local brews and news. Cheers.